Coming up on The Mark Divine Show. Trust is a willingness to be vulnerable when we can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. And if I want you to trust me, I need to have the courage to go first. I need to be willing to be vulnerable to you first to initiate a normal reciprocity. And if I'm a leader, I got to have the stones to actually lead with imperfections. Welcome to the Mark Divine Show. This is your host, Mark Divine. On this show, I love to explore what it means to be fearless by speaking to some of the world's most courageous and resilient leaders, stoic philosophers, startup entrepreneurs, experts on trust, such as my guest today, Mr. Daryl Stickle. Before I introduce Daryl further, though, let me say Happy New Year. I hope this year, 2023, was an amazing one for you. I know there were a ton of challenges, lots going on in the world, but you move forward, you made it, and 2024 is going to be even better. So here's the 24. Let's do it together. Going to be awesome. As I said, my guest today is Daryl Sticker. Daryl's a leading expert on trust. He's got over 20 years' experience. His PhD was called Building Trust in Hostile Environments. He got that from Duke University. And this established him as a global leader on trust for government, business, and NGOs. Daryl's worked for McKinsey and Company, as well as advised the Canadian military on trust building in Afghanistan, and has served on the faculty for the Luxembourg School of Business and Center for Effective Organizations at the University of Southern California. He's recently completed a book called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Super stoked to have you here. Thank you for joining me, Daryl, on the Mark Devine Show. Mr. Tickle, thanks for joining me today on the Mark Devine Show. Super stoked to have you here, sir. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to get into our conversation from a topic that's very, very important and seems to be a lot of um, questions about trust in the in the world today, especially what's been going on the last few years, the politics and news media and all that. But uh, before we get into that and, and, you know, like the crux of your work, give us a sense for you. What made you who you are? What were your big life moments that helped shape your interest in doing what you're doing? That's a good question. And and there's this, apparently Kierkegaard said that life makes sense in reverse. Yes. <laughs> and we've all heard some kind of variation of that, right? I was born and raised in a small town in Northern Canada, Fort St. John, and it was pretty remote. There were about 12,000 people. We were about an, an hour from the next small town. It wasn't that uncommon for it to be minus 40. Mm-hmm. People had to pull together, right? There was a sense of community. Not that everyone was an angel, but if somebody needed help, you gave them help. I grew up believing that if I could help people, I should. And so had a fairly strong sense of empathy from that experience. And then when I was 17, I was playing junior hockey. I got attacked by a fan with a club. No way. Yeah. Well, that's not very helpful. <laughs> it was not helpful. <laughs> Shattered my helmet, knocked me unconscious. Another player grabbed me, beat the tar out of me. Jeez Louise. You guys yeah. play rough up there. It was a rigorous Saturday night. So I ended up with this really severe concussion. And it was in the mid-80s. We didn't really know much about concussions, right? So right. mindset was kind of walk it off. And I knew at the time that I was going vision, legally blind, right? Like I was going to become really legally blind. And so I had always thought that I would train my brain so I could think for a living, right? And now all of a sudden I can't think at all, right? Like I've got the attention span of a fruit fly. Wait, let, let me pause here. So you knew you were going to be go legally blind before you got attacked? I did, yeah. Okay. I had a hereditary retinal disorder that was degenerative. What was that like, by the way? I mean, to know that's coming, like how did you prepare for that? I don't know if I've ever spoken to someone who like had their sight and, and then knew they were going to lose it and then 
and you've lost it? Yeah, so I can see, you know, clearly a couple of inches. Okay. After that, everything's pretty blurry. I, I tell people I can see a couple of feet. Usually, they're my own. Wait, <laughs> um, <laughs> is it correctable? I mean, can you see through glasses or anything? No, I'm missing chromosomes in my retinas. I've got something called cone dystrophy. Got it. You know, it's a good question. It puts a lot of things in perspective. Aspirations of being a an airline pilot are probably out the window. Yeah. And you've got to figure out how you can set yourself up so that you can be successful down the road. When you were playing hockey when you were 17 or so, you had your eyesight then. I had some sight. Oh, really? You know, it was interesting because I would watch the players and not the puck. So I saw the flow of the play. And so I could tell where the puck was by the way people were facing and skating and what people were doing. I went on to play college hockey a year later and my my coach said to me, he goes, you're 6'3", you're 200 pounds. You're leading the league in scoring. He says, how do you find yourself wide open in front of the net all the time? And I said, I just go to open ice. Like, there's just open pockets where I can be dangerous. And so I thought about the game in a way that was different. You could catch the movement of the puck, right? And that, that's probably... And the high contrast, because it's a black disc on a white surface, right? Right, right. And so if, if it was close to me, I could manage. I knew I was going to lose my sight, you know, and I was doing well in school. The thing that had sort of set me apart was now no longer the thing that set me apart. And I had the experience of feeling really helpless and hopeless, lost. After you got attacked and yeah. the concussion, yeah. And I had symptoms for two years afterwards. Yeah, so probably depression is a big a common side effect of that. Not uncommon, yep. And a lot of uncertainty because I didn't know what was really wrong with me. I was just so tired all the time and I couldn't remember things and I was having trouble with executive function and all this stuff that we would know now is, yeah, that's what happens when you have a head injury. But then they were kind of like, you shouldn't be feeling tired now. It's been a couple of months. And so there was this long journey where they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me, you know, and they would test me for mono. And then they say, well, you know, AIDS has a high fatigue rate. And I'm like, I don't fit that profile. <laughs> so, right. you know, but yeah, they would test once me. they say it, everyone's like, well, really? <laughs> really? Are you <laughs> sure? <laughs> and they're like, you know, you could have leukemia. We could test you for leukemia. And so th it was a, a challenging journey for a few years. And I slowly recovered. But I found myself eventually in school here in Victoria, British Columbia. And people would just sit down next to me on the bus and say, I'm really having a hard time. And so for some reason, complete strangers would just open up to me. And I kind of wanted to understand what was driving that. And I also thought if this is going to keep happening, I should get paid for this. <laughs> so, <laughs> free, free therapy is out. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Come on. I, I want to turn in my amateur status and get my, uh, my professional designation. And so I started down a path towards becoming a clinical psychologist. So I, I'm taking psychology courses and I'm working with troubled teens and street kids and families in crisis and working on crisis lines and all those kinds of things. And after a while, I come to realize that a lot of the folks I'm working with are just doing the best they can. And that even if I had a, a plan for them to move forward, they couldn't follow it. And I thought this will drive me insane. And so I shifted and went into public administration. And I was working in native land claims here in British Columbia. And they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, you know, what is self-government? Or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? <laughs> yeah, that's a biggie. That's a biggie yeah. Uh, and I went, man, that's a good question. I'm impressed they were even thinking that way. Yeah. Right? Because I don't get the impression like here in America that a lot of people are 
thinking that way about social justice. They're really more thinking, uh, how do we kind of get out of the guilt and the shame of it? Yeah, and a lot of people very self-involved and not thinking about the perspective of somebody else. That's right. Yeah, That's the challenge. And so I went to Duke and did my PhD on building trust in hostile environments because I wanted to understand this felt like one of those long-term disputes that just doesn't seem to go away. And there's other examples of that in the world. And why are they so resilient? Like, they don't do us any good after a certain period of time. They're just painful. When people have trouble letting go. The old Hatfield McCoy story, right? Played out at a pretty big scale. Yeah. So I started reading all the literature on trust and trying to understand it. And it turned out that there were two people at Duke when I was there who were considered leading experts in theory on the topic of trust. And they were both on my committee. And I started sort of looking at the research and seeing that most of it was treating trust like a black box, like there was some kind of antecedent that popped up out here, and then trust would just pop out the other side. And I thought, wow, we got to have a better understanding of what's going on than that. And is it really just memorizing a couple of levers that we can pull, like be authentic? Unless your authentic self is somebody I don't like, then don't be authentic at all. And so I developed a model for understanding how people make the decision to trust, and then how we actually can intervene to make it easier for people to trust us. So how does trust work and how do we build it? And when I finished, the two people on my committee who were experts sat down with me and we had a drink. They said, okay, so you first came to us and we, the two of us had a conversation. And we said, too big, too complicated. He never solves it. They said, we'll give him six months. He'll come crawling back. We'll narrow it down a little bit. <laughs> we'll let him chisel off a little piece of this and that'll be his thesis. They said, six months in, you were so far beyond us, we couldn't help anymore. All we could do is sit and watch. And here we are two years later. We think you've solved it. And so I left there, went to work for McKinsey and Company, big management consulting firm, where I started to actually apply some of this work. And the learning curve is just remarkable when you're actually out in the field. You were solving it for individuals or, or teams? And organizations. And yeah. organizations, yeah. Interesting. So small scale at first. And then I was involved in a car accident on the way to a client site. Ended up with post-concussion syndrome. So I'd had 10 concussions by this point. It was just one too many, and I couldn't go back to that work. And so I started a small company called Trust Unlimited and started working with clients. You know, my first client was a mutual fund company. It was one of the guys I'd worked with had become head of strategy. And he said, just come talk to us. He said, talk to us about sustainable competitive advantage. I said, well, that means you do something your competition doesn't that they can't copy. I said, you don't do anything I can't copy. You know, I buy one share of every fund you have. Now I know how they're all built. And so I could sell what you sell at a discount because I don't have to pay the fund advisor. I said, the only way you can differentiate yourselves is to build deep, long-term relationships with your customers. And they said, that's it. That's our strategy. And over 18 months, I trained everyone. I developed the first workshop. I trained everyone in their organization. After 18 months, they hired a professional survey firm, found out that trust was the primary driver of the sales decision and that they were dramatically more trusted than any of their competitors. And they generated 75 cents of every new dollar that came into the industry for the next two years. From that, I knew, okay, what I have isn't perfect, but it works. And so I started applying it to nonprofits and public sector and private sector and all over the planet. And Canadian military asked me to help them try to figure out how to build trust with the locals in Afghanistan. And all this time I'm learning. I'm learning more and more about how it works, how to explain it in a way that people get it, how to help them change behavior patterns to build trust with other people. That's amazing. 
you know, when I, my latest book, uh, Stirring Down the World, I have like seven, I call them commitments that build elite teams. And the first three, which are like a foundational pyramid, are courage, trust, and respect. And so the reason I put courage first is because it, it takes courage, right, to be trustworthy. It does. And then from the ability to be trustworthy, trust can be built. My perspective is it's got to start with you. Meaning like if you're, you're the one that's seeking trust, then be trustworthy. Right. And that means you got to be courageous, you know, to do a number of uh, things well and to take you know, responsibility for when things don't go so well and, you know, and a few other things. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on how do we build trust. I agree so wholeheartedly with you because trust is a willingness to be vulnerable when we can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. And if I want you to trust me, I need to have the courage to go first. I need to be willing to be vulnerable to you first to initiate a normal reciprocity. And if I'm a leader, I got to have the stones to actually lead with imperfections. I love that. I love you said that because that's, you know, my title of that book is called Staring Down the Wolf, which means for a leader to stare down their fear, stare down their shadow, stare down their perfectionism, stare down all the isms. Yeah. And just be okay just being you today and just show up the best you can. Once we lead with imperfection, we show people that we're human, that we can make mistakes. We give them permission to make mistakes themselves. And that's how we learn and grow and develop. You know, I mean, Mark, I don't know about you, but the first time I try something, I'm not great at it. <laughs> you know, I well, make mistakes. I'm perfect at everything I try. Well, yeah, no, I thought you probably were. I had that sense, but... <laughs> but <laughs> not. Yeah, right? And what made a great leader 10 years ago is not the same thing that makes a great leader today. That's for sure especially after COVID, right? And I think this conversation is so important because everybody seems to be suffering because the veil of perfectionism had been stripped away. Like all leaders who just thought they could just keep on doing the same thing and expecting different results, they're getting a dull thud in response from their teams. Right. And people are just quitting or they're just saying, screw it. I'll work here, but I'm not going to put out for you because, you know, you're toxic. Right. And it's not that the guy is negative or the, the person is negative. It's that idea that they're right and you've got to basically prove it to yourself that they're right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and it's the same thing with trust. The things that used to work 10 years ago don't work anymore. Isn't that interesting? I remember reading Stephen Covey's Speed of Trust. So are you saying some of that stuff is kind of obsolete, some of what he wrote about? Stephen R. Covey, that is. Yeah. Wow. Did I open up a Pandora's box there? <laughs> well, it's just I don't want to be rude. Yeah. He's a popular author. He wasn't a scholar, so we'll give him that. Yeah, he's a popular author, not a scholar, right? That's a fair distinction. So when I started really looking at this, I realized that if trust is the willingness to be vulnerable, when we can't predict how someone is going to behave, there's elements of vulnerability and uncertainty in that definition. And I actually believe that when we're deciding to trust, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. And I'm not dodging the Stephen R. Covey question. Okay. I'll circle back to it. So first question we ask is, how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty? The second question we ask is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt? Which is perceived vulnerability. Those things multiply together to give us a level of perceived risk. And psychological safety is the how you perceive the environment to protect you from that perceived level of risk. Right. I think that psychological safety occurs when we have high trust environments. It's an outcome of that. And so uncertainty times vulnerability equals risk. We have a threshold of risk that we can tolerate. If we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. And so that means early in relationships, uncertainty is usually pretty high. That means we can only tolerate a small range of vulnerability and still fit below that threshold. As those relationships deepen, the uncertainty starts to drop. And that means the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. 
And that's what deep relationships look like. That the depth of hurt that you allow grows as well. It does. Because if you greater trust, like with my teammates in the seals, like, you know, if I'm working with them for three years and suddenly someone, you know, does something really screwed up, I give them a lot of rope, right? And say, okay, you know, I, you know you've been great for three years. You, you made a lot of deposits in the emotional bank account. So I'll, I'll cut you some slack for that one. Right. But if that happens right away, I'm like, okay, dude, you're out of here. Yeah. There's small bounces and uncertainty we can tolerate, right? Right. And it's like, I got three years of evidence versus this one mess up. Okay. I'm willing to be patient and check, but I'm I'm also possibly a little more hesitant, right? That's right. That, that threshold has come down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, right. So if we're going to talk about building trust, then it's where does uncertainty come from? How do we take steps to reduce it? Where does vulnerability come from? How do we take steps to manage that? And there are other levers that we can pull that, you know, we, we have perceived outcomes, which means we may have dramatically different perceptions of the exact same event. And that feeds back into our next interaction with those people. And in the middle of all this is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike someone else. 99% of the trust literature treats people like rational actors. Right. And it's not. It's, they're emotional. Yeah. And the more emotional we become, the less rational we are, right? That's right. So Covey's work actually talks about a subset of uncertainty. It's the individual components of uncertainty. It's not in misalignment with most of the other trust literature. It's strictly relational one-on-one. He's talking about what are the things that I can do as an individual? Uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals, and it comes from the context that we're embedded in. The example I like to use is a doctor's office. You go to a doctor's office, they say, take off your clothes, and you do. (laughs) Mark, I've tried that in other places. Yeah, it doesn't work at the grocery store. No, right? (laughs) And I tell them, I'm a doctor. (laughs) Doesn't help, right? And if, if we took that example, we took those same two people dressed the same way, and we moved them from a a doctor's office to a restroom at a gas station. It goes from credible to creepy in a heartbeat. <laughs> Imagine you stand there washing your hands and some guy comes in with a white coat on and says, take off your clothes. I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect some of your SEAL training would kick in at that moment. Yeah, I might. Yeah. Unless it was one of my instructors, in which case I know I'm being hazed. Badly. Right. Yes. So <laughs> Covey stuff is sort of representative of some of the material we talked about around these individual components. And and it's similar to work that was done in the mid-90s. There's three levers there that we can talk about to pull to show that we have trustworthiness. And those are benevolence, integrity, and ability. And benevolence is, do you have my best interest at heart? Will you act in my best interest? Integrity is, do I follow through on my commitments? And do my actions line up with the values that I express? And abilities, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? We all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. For those who aren't great at building trust, they have a lever that they pull. Usually it's the ability lever, right? I have these kinds of credentials, this background, this much experience, on and on. This is why we say character trumps ability when it comes to trust, right? Yeah, because it's those integrity questions and those benevolence questions. You know, those who are a little better at building trust have multiple levers. I believe there are 10 levers we can pull. So those who are a little better have multiple levers. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one, right? And so what I do is systematically walk people through the 10 levers. And then I talk about how to pull those levers, which is something we're not seeing a lot in the trust literature, right? We're seeing people say, okay, it's important to have people's best interest at heart. But Mark, I go in front of families and do work with families. And I say to the parents, who here has their kid's best interest at heart? Every hand goes up. Then when I flip it and I say, how many of your kids would say that? It's a third, and it's somewhat hesitant. And so 
if I have your best interest at heart, but you don't feel it, you don't experience it, it doesn't land. And so we actually need to figure out how do we pull that lever in a way so that it lands. And this is the challenge for a lot of leaders because they feel like, I do that. I do those things. Says who? Right? Because me telling you I'm benevolent carries a lot less freight than you saying, Daryl really seems to care about people, cares about me. How do you train benevolence? You know, it's kind of one of those things. It's more of a consciousness level, character level thing. I do believe character can be trained, but you're certainly not going to do it from a workshop. So what I do, and this has been a learning curve for me as well. First few years were really understanding how trust works. Then it was, how do I explain it in a way that people get it? Now I'm really on about how do I get people to practice these skills so that it becomes part of their toolkit? So let's take benevolence as an example. What I will say to people is, because a lot of times we think we're doing something in somebody's best interest, but it doesn't land that way. And I suspect that there were moments during your SEAL training when you thought, these people don't give a shit about me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but they were really trying to prepare you for anything that came your way. So they had your best interest at heart, but it didn't feel like it in the moment. And so what I do is I give people a script. In the book that I wrote, I give people a list of ways that they can pull the benevolence lever, ways they can pull the integrity lever, ways they can pull the ability lever. What I like to do is get them to practice, and your listeners can practice this. Find someone that's safe to practice with. Not someone who loves you, someone who hates you, but someone sort of in the middle where you can say, heard this guy talking about trust, and he said benevolence mattered. And that means having someone's best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And they'll go, yes, because almost all of us have. They're reminding me, by the way, not to be said, but the, when a strong impression comes into my head, I often comes out my mouth. Yeah. But I remember back in high school, and there was this kid in the, you know, in the playground. No, it wasn't high school. It was like middle school. And the kid in the playground, and he had just been bullied. And so I go up and try to be benevolent, right, to provide some comfort, and he punches me in the face. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I was like, what did I do wrong, man? I felt so bad. Yeah. But that, that was what you're talking about. It, it didn't land for him, right? He wasn't ready for that, you know? He already felt weak and vulnerable and felt ashamed. Right. He was shamed, and I just shamed him more by pitying him. That wasn't serving him. Yeah. Anyways, that's an example of what you're talking about. I could have used your help back then. You could have. So <laughs> then, you know, we tell these stories. We have this conversation about moments where we've fallen flat. And then you narrow the funnel and you say, has someone ever really had your back? Have you ever had that experience where you really felt someone was looking out for you? Like they cared and they had your best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. And that'll cause them to start thinking and it starts to prime them. And we start asking questions about what, what did they do? What did it look like? How did it feel? Now we're getting hints, right, about what benevolence feels like for that person. What actions seem like benevolence to them? Then we narrow the funnel further and we say, Mark, what would success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What would it look like if I was benevolent to you? Now we've created a moment of transparency because you can tell me what benevolence looks like to you and I can follow up a week or a month or a year later saying, you remember when you told me this is what success looked like for you? I was thinking about you when I did this. How would you define benevolence? Because it's more than compassion. It's having someone's interests. Like we in the SEAL teams, or actually in, in my training at SEALFIT, we tried it. We call it taking your eyes off yourself, putting on your teammate. Like literally make your teammates' success your success. And then, you know, if you're on a team of eight, you've got seven other people who are looking out for your success. And all of a sudden, you just got all this energy and all this trust is built. Yeah. Is that what you mean by benevolence? That's exactly right. You've nailed it. 
It's about putting someone else's interests first. It's about being aware of their interests. This is hard, by the way, because, you know, vast majority of people, even in their into adulthood, are egocentric by nature just because that's their stage of development. Of course they are. And we don't have a lot of mechanisms in our Western culture to move beyond that individualistic, egocentric kind of stage. It's why the work that I'm doing is so important because mm-hmm. it gives people levers that allow them to actually make change and they can practice. When my oldest son was 12, he looked at me one day and he said, Dad, even when you're upset with me, I know it's about what's best for me. That's called winning as a parent. And it means that your actions are interpreted through a positive light. And it's the same thing as a leader. If your people believe you have their best interest at heart, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to ask you when things don't seem right or going sideways instead of just saying, yeah, I don't need to know. I'm just going to coast. Clearly, this place doesn't care about me. It's how we combat that quiet quitting. It's how we get people engaged, motivated. They'll go through a wall for you if they believe that you're on about what's best for the team, what's best for them. One of the most powerful tools in the SEAL teams to develop trust was the debrief process. And the most powerful part about that was, well, there's a couple aspects. One was transparency, like everything was acceptable. I don't know how they're doing it today with PC woke stuff, but you know, in my day, like everything, like everything was on the table, right? And there was no topics that were off limits if they degraded the performance of the team. And so, in order for that to work, everybody had to both deliver the criticism in a non-personal way, in other words, to discuss how it happened and how it affected you, your perception of what happened and how it degraded yours or the team's performance without saying, hey, you screwed up. Right. <laughs> you're, you know, you're a terrible person. And so to, to make it non-personal. And so then that allows the individual to begin to receive as non-judgmental in a non-judgmental way. It's like, oh, this is actually for my benefit so that I can improve, so that I can be a better teammate, so that I can help or at least not degrade mission performance. Right. And it takes a little while for a new guy, you know, in future, a new girl to get used to that. I'm reminded of Ray Dalio's discussion about meritocracy taking about 18 months for new employees to get used to a meritocracy where they have similar attributes. Right. But anyways, I I just want to get your take on that because I thought that transparency and not projecting onto other people judgment when you're trying to give them feedback. It's difficult work, but it's powerful, I think. It is really powerful. And it's a mechanism for creating a shared narrative. We have this tendency to interpret the world through stories. And we're usually the center of our own story. I have this saying that there's not one world, there's 8 billion worlds. Right. And there's some shared consensus reality, but not a whole lot. Right. (laughs) Everyone's got their own world. Yeah. And so when I've run into situations where there's people in conflict or groups in conflict, and what I'll do is I'll sit down with one person and I'll say, what's your story? How'd we get here? And I listen, right? I pay attention. I ask questions. I listen. I try to flesh it out. Then I go to the other person independently, separately. What's your story? Then I bring them together and I say, okay, person one, I want you to try to tell me person two's story. And it forces them to be, oh, let me try to adopt that perspective. I guess this is what would be going on for them. This is the story they might be telling. This is their experience of it. And person two is sitting there listening with the opportunity to say, actually, that's not quite right. Or no, that's not how I feel. And then we flip it and I say, okay, person two, tell me person one's story. And it gives us a chance to start to create a shared story instead of two different ones. Perspective making. That would be a great mediation training, right? For lawyers. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so 
this is another one of the levers that we pull when we talk about perceived outcomes. Like the SEALs are great for saying, here's our objective. This is what success looks like. This is what a good outcome looks like. Most other organizations aren't as clear, right? Most other teams aren't as clear. They come together, they do something, and then they kind of have this retrospective of, well, I think we achieved it or we didn't, or what were we trying to do? And so part of what I do when I walk people through this model is I, I talk them through how do we reduce uncertainty? How do we manage vulnerability? How do we understand where it comes from and how to take steps to reduce it? How do we manage perceived outcomes, both in terms of having a shared understanding of what a good outcome looks like? Because, you know, I, I think about the SEALs example, if, if they just sent you out and said cause havoc and then said, oh, actually, target one was really more important than the target two. We wish you'd hit it first. Well, tell me that, right? Exactly. Because we'll have fun creating havoc. Yeah. <laughs> May not help much. <laughs> <laughs> just for the other guys, right? Let's get some clarifying yeah. questions or havoc for everyone. And so, you know, if we have a shared understanding of what the goals and objectives are, we have a much better chance of actually achieving them. And if we have a shared understanding of what a good outcome looks like, you know, some of this challenge we face when, when we finish something and people start going, well, I didn't think that was great. And other people thought, I thought that was fantastic. And we start seeing really different perspectives on whether it was a good outcome or not, who gets the credit, who gets the blame. These are all places that we can actually intervene. There are levers that we can pull to build stronger relationships. And, you know, when we were talking before, I said the old approaches to building trust are are not as valid as they used to be, it's because we, we need to be more intentional than we've ever been. Because vulnerability sure hasn't gone down, right? Our perception of vulnerability, if anything, is a little higher than it was. But our uncertainty is bouncing all over the place. Norms and values are changing. The rules seem to be changing. The pandemic changed everything. And we've got a group of people in positions of power. This is a bugaboo for me. You know, you talked about politics. A lot of times when I talk to senior leaders and I say, would you like to be a politician? They say, there's no way I'd put my family through that. I've spoken those very words, except I think I would also say there's no way I'd put myself through it. Right. And so <laughs> who do we attract then? A disproportionate number of people who don't give a shit about anyone but themselves. That's right. Narcissists. And one of the most popular songs in the U.S. right now is Richmond, North of Richmond. It's a protest song. And it's articulating the fact that there's a lack of benevolence. There's this belief that when our politicians lead us, they should be looking out for us, not themselves. We're not seeing that. And so trust levels are at the lowest we've ever seen. It's harder for people to be vulnerable than, than it's been in maybe ever because the uncertainty is bouncing so much. And in that environment, leaders need to have, as you say, the courage to go first. So leaders, organization leaders can bring some sanity to their troops, so to speak. I've seen it. By developing that trust and giving some certainty back that, hey, regardless of what's going on in that political sphere and the news cycle and the lack of trust because of the disinformation and the suppression of information, regardless of all that, we have trust here and we can develop that safety here and that vulnerability. We can build a safe harbor. Yeah, build a safe harbor. Right. That jives with with our work. We're trying, you know, we're, we're a small company too, and our work is, mo is focused more on integrated vertical development, you know, trying to really evolve people's consciousness, character. So it's very similar because one of the outcomes is greater trust, greater courage, trust, and respect, you know, those seven commitments. Yeah. And we look at the organization as the best place for that growth to occur, which is very different than, you know, the industrial age paradigm of go to work and then go home and you take your mask off and, you know, you're somebody different. You know, no. So work can become a community of practice to develop 
those qualities that, to develop your, your sense of self, your trustworthiness, your respectability. Yeah. And then everyone can come together in that to develop great engagement and, and psychological safety to where you actually really, really enjoy work, not for the money, but because that's where you go to grow. Right. That's where your good experiences are. That's where the positive impact you have in your life is. I agree completely. There's a huge overlap in what we're on about. The research is really consistent that higher trust levels lead to higher levels of performance, higher productivity, higher employee engagement, higher profitability. On and on it goes. That's from before, before the trust levels were so desperately low. How valuable is it now? A company that gets this right has a huge strategic advantage. So I'm curious at the organizational level, like you go in and you work with a group and you have to do like, first it's information transfer and then you give them these practices. Those practices can be done in role plays or just, you know, opportunistically. But how, how do we scale this? Like, how do we scale trust? Well, I'm trying to do that. That's why I wrote the book, because I was having these amazing experiences, but it felt like I was dropping grains of sand in the ocean. <laughs> Understand. I've right? been doing that for years. <laughs> yeah, right, brother? And, and so we need people to come alongside and pick up great big rocks and help us make big splashes. And so that's why I wrote the book. I did a master class that's sort of it's three hours long. It's five-minute segments, right? So it's 36 five-minute segments that include role plays and exercises that people can practice and those kinds of things. It's really about trying to spread the word. There is a way to get better at this. Trust is a skill that you can build. My experience is that with development is that most, you know, development, we call it the difference between horizontal and vertical. You've probably heard of those terms, you know, so, so most old, you know, leadership development programs are developed horizontally, meaning you just, you're adding new concepts to your toolkit, but it's not changing the dial on who you are or how you show up. It just changes what you know a little bit. And so leaders who go to all these certificate programs and whatnot, stacking their resume, and then, you know, the, the words come out of their mouth, but they're not embodying the change. And so for us, Real transformation occurs through a process of embodiment, which means you've got to get your body involved. And so we do things that are gritty. Okay. <laughs> you know, like one of our programs is like you want to you train like a Navy SEAL. You want to learn about trust, then train like a Navy SEAL. And, and we have a 50-hour non nonstop training program modeled after Hell Week, Navy SEALs Hell Week. Right. It's extraordinary. But no, we, I recognize that not everyone can or wants to do that level of hard. Our program of Unbeatable, it's like we, we have people doing things together that seem hard from the outside, but, you know, once you, you're into it, it's actually, it's really engaging and fun. So it's perception management. You know, we, we cook them like a frog and slowly get them into, you know, the experience and suddenly they're like, oh my God, look what I'm doing. Yeah. And they're building trust, but they're embodying it, right? So they're, they're learning it through their bodies, not through their head, just their head. Right. Head, heart, and hands. Head, heart, and hara, and hands. I was thinking, you know, that would be very effective for your, you know, for your content to figure out an experiential embodied mechanism to uh, build trust, which is the title of your book, Building Trust. Right. And that's partly what we try to get at is forcing them to have conversations and practice these skills. And so it's not quite the level of intensity that you have. You know, we had this saying, everyone wants to be a frogman on a sunny day. Right. It's easy to have a, a conversation when there's high psychological safety and you're in practice. It's way harder when you're under pressure and you're emotionally unstable and, you know, but you have to, you have to do it in order to move forward. Right. So how do you inject some VUCA into the training itself to make it more realistic 
that would be interesting. Yeah, well, and partly I get people to apply it to relationships in their real lives. There you go. Well, there's a lot of VUCA in real life relationships, that's for sure. I had a student when I was teaching in Luxembourg, one of the MBA students, because all my students had to apply the concepts to a real relationship in their lives. He chose his five and three-year-old, his two sons. And he said, I think their relationship's broken forever. I've been away most of their lives working in a different country, and I just don't know what to do. He said, I, I'm terrified. And so I lash out. I get angry. I get frustrated. He said, they're scared of me. And after three months, his final report was, and, you know, I'd been coaching him, taking him through the concepts, getting him to practice. He said, things have changed completely. They throw themselves on me. They run to me. They fight over who gets to sit next to me at dinner. That's awesome. That's the kind of impact we're having. Yeah, that's cool. Well, Daryl, I've um, got to kind of wrap this up. But so building trust, exceptional leadership in an uncertain world, that's out in the marketplace. You can find it on Amazon or wherever. Anywhere online. Yeah, anywhere online. It's available as an Audible book. People can reach out to me at daryl at trustunlimited.com or they can go to my website, trustunlimited.com. Trustunlimited.com. Man, this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate it. And there's many vectors, right, that are happening in this world to really help pull people up by their bootstraps, you know, become more positive in some of this uh, endless cycle of negativity and violence. And, and yeah. ultimately, we have, to be, we have to be trustworthy and trust each other in order to rise above the, the bullshit that we're seeing in the political and, and uh, whatever, whatever you want to call that fear-based world out there, which seems to have us locked in perpetual negativity and violence. And I don't think that's sustainable, obviously. Right. But it's done for a purpose. Because it keeps everyone trapped in fight or flight and yeah. in victimhood and, you know, needing the latest pharma this or, you know, <laughs> don't get me going on this one. But the only way out of that is to turn off the energy spigot to all that, right? Well, and for us to have collective collaborative action. That's right. right? To be pulling together. All of us pulling on the rope in the same direction. That means we need trust. We need to pull together. And you see them trying like heck to destroy the trust between different populations, different groups, and even families and individuals. And it's just been relentless over the past 30, 40 years. Well, and we see them ratcheting up our perceptions of vulnerability, right? That's right. If you vote for this guy, the world will end. And that means that we can't tolerate any uncertainty at all. We are, we're hiding in our homes. We're not talking to each other. We're not having conversations. Appreciate you very much, sir. And uh, let's stay in touch. I'd really like that. Hoo yeah. That was a fascinating discussion with Daryl Stickle. Thanks so much, sir, for your work on trust. And uh, wow, it's a really important topic. We need to rebuild trust in the world, and all of us can learn from Daryl. And thanks so much for your time today. Show notes will be up on markdevine.com. YouTube is on our YouTube channel. You can reach out to me on X at markdevine or on Instagram or meta at realmarkdevine or through my LinkedIn channel. My newsletter, Divine Inspiration, comes out every Tuesday. I've got my blog. I've got show notes from the week's podcast. I've got other inspirational things that comes across my desk that I think you'll find valuable. So check it out and subscribe at markdevine.com. Thanks so much for Jason Sanderson and Catherine Devine who helped me produce this podcast and bring incredible guests like Daryl to you every week. Ratings and reviews are very, very helpful and appreciated. So please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to this. Thanks so much for being part of the change you want to see in the world. Happy New Year. Let's make 2024 the best year ever and continue to bring more positivity and abundance into the world. One person, one day at a time. Hoo-yah.